Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Philip. Actually, I should have checked this before, and it's uh, White, correct? You got okay. it. Uh, he's the uh, he's an assistant professor of history and northern studies at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. Thanks for being on here. Uh, absolutely, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So I, I got to first start with the weather. Anytime I talk to anybody from Fairbanks, I want to do a weather check. And I was talking with my buddy Harrison. It was negative 50, but uh, I, I hear things have warmed up a little bit up there. Yeah, considerably. We are uh, about 80 degrees warmer than it was uh, a couple of weeks ago. So got up to 30 degrees here today. It was a beautiful sunny day, not a, not a cloud in the sky, but uh, it was so it was so warm with those temperatures and the sun that uh, my uh, eight-story building here on campus, the Ernest Greening building, was just shedding snow off the top. So it uh, feels like a, a pretty loud announcement that uh, that spring is around the corner. Yeah, you still got you're in false spring uh, time still, right? You got the little bit, a uh, little bit more until breakup. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. I think this is the best time of the year. You know, we got we got enough snow that our trails are in, right? So if you're a skier, you're a fat biker. It's a great time to get out. Um, obviously, the, the Yukon Quest came through here a uh, week and a half or so ago. Those trails are still put in, so I've got friends who are going out uh, enjoying that that whole trail system. And uh, yeah, I used to be a fall person uh, lived uh, in the lower 48, but now that I'm up here, this is the best time of year. So I hope it stays like this uh, well well into May. Yeah, you get some of those nice long days, and you can do some stuff that's pretty nice. So one of the reasons why I want to talk to you is you have a background in Northern studies and and history. And, you know, anytime that you read anything about the interior of Alaska, weather is a very, plays a very prominent role, whether it be gold rush history or uh, Frank Glazer talking about being a a sheep hunter. Uh, Shadows of the Koyukuk is a great book. So um, what can you tell me about some of the, what things were like in that Klondike gold rush time um, and then how the Fairbanks area kind of incorporated into that. Cause we think about the gold rush, think of Skagway and we think of Dawson, we think of the Klondike, but interior Alaska has a pretty robust gold rush history. Absolutely. Only reason I'm sitting here today is because of gold. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, an appropriate place to start this would actually be, Going back to the 1850s, um, and even earlier, you know, um, the indigenous inhabitants of Alaska knew about gold resources up here. Uh, they didn't have a, a really a, an industrial or a capitalist mentality associated with that. But even the Russians knew about gold resources, not just in, um, you know, they, they most of the Russian empire in Alaska was along the coastal regions. And they knew of gold, but they were very concerned about telling anybody in the outside world because of what had happened uh, along the Fraser River um, in the, eight, the 1850s. I think it was 1858. Basically, what happened is there was gold discovered in Canada, and so many Americans stampeded in mm. that the Russians knew that if that happened in Alaska, they couldn't maintain, they couldn't hold the territory against those hordes of Euro-Americans coming from the, from the lower 48. So, you know, gold had been known up here for a long time. Um, after the, the, the session of Alaska, the purchase of Alaska in 1867, uh, there were a number of fur traders and kind of independent operators who began operating in northern and interior Alaska. 
and again, it's 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 worth mentioning the Russians never controlled or conquered the vast majority of Alaska, right? Um, certainly not interior Alaska, certainly not northern Alaska. And so um, these are some of the first, uh, you know, Europeans to really to really settle in the region. These are famous people like uh, Arthur Harper, uh, Al Mayo. And what they did is uh, they lived like the indigenous people have uh, for centuries. They uh, they married native women um, and they they thrived up here, but they they were traders. So they would they were involved in the fur trade, but they would also bring in commodities that indigenous communities were really interested in: um, rifles, knives, ammunition, things like this. And um, they began to scout the mineral resources of Interior Alaska. And there's uh, a number of excellent books that talk about this. One of them is uh, Morgan Sherwood's book, uh, Exploration in Alaska, 1865 to 1900, if anybody's interested in, in doing a little uh, reading on their own. And all of this uh, set the scene for a series of gold rushes that actually occurred before the big Klondike gold mm. rush. And, uh, you know, there were strikes at 40 Mile in 1886, at Birch Creek in 1893, um, and then the, the the town of Circle emerges as an important supply point along the Yukon River. And then we also have gold strikes at Rampart in 1893, and only then do we have the big Klondike gold strike in 1896. So all of that is kind of a backstory, and I won't go into great detail about a Klondike strike. I think that story is, is well told and well known. But once Klondike right? You have 100,000 Euro Americans stampeding into the territory, trying to get to this region. Most of them have no idea about the geography. Um, kind of reminds me of some of the, you know, like some of the worst tourists that we get into Alaska today, <laughs> where, they, where they show up and they, they're trying to uh, pay for things with Canadian currency, or, uh, you know, they're, one, they're asking what country are they in, right? People didn't realize that the Klondike was in Canada. They didn't have a sense of the geography of this place. And, um, you know, there was a pretty steep learning curve here with the weather, with the climatic conditions. Um, so most of those stampeders, they don't make any money, right? The people who made money were uh, the merchants. They were mining the miners, right? The mm -hmm. ones who were selling them supplies. But what ends up happening is that from the Klondike, uh, you have, the discovery of gold in Nome, um, and that's a that's a major jumping off point. And you have all of these people who travel from Klondike to Nome. And what's remarkable is a number of this is this is you know kind of wild from our perspective today. A number of them utilized one of the most cutting edge transportation technologies of the era to get between the Klondike and Nome in the spring of 1900 1901. They rode bicycles all the way down the Yukon River oh, wow. in uh, in wild conditions in order to get to know about it. You you read these stories and it's almost unbelievable. But it just shows you these were these were these were pioneering individuals. Uh, they were using the 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 best technology that they could get their hands on for the conditions that were out there, and they were hungry to get to the gold sites as fast as possible because uh, you wanted to you know, stake the, the most lucrative claims that you could. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, the the story kind of goes, or the stuff you kind of hear a lot is the people that go up. There, there's the first ship that arrives in Seattle, and then everything goes crazy, and so people start coming up, and some people get as far as Juno and just stay there, like, hey, this is fine. I'm just gonna stay here. This is crazy. Other people stay in Skagway. If they do get up, um, in order to get to Dawson, they have to go up the Chilkoot Trail and then build their own boat and then float down. I mean, I can't even imagine someone who. missed out on California in 1849 and then well I'm gonna I'm gonna go to Dawson and then just having to build your own boat it's you know then you get to Dawson and then it's too late so then you float down and you hear so many of these stories about the next gold rush being in Nome but they always mention you know stop off at these places on the Yukon and I always think well how did how did this place already how was it established if you know, it's down river. So that, that had to mean that there was some other things going on in the interior. Otherwise you wouldn't have these posts. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, there was this history of, you know, call it uh, at least 10 years before this, you know, starting with that, that first gold strike at 40 mile in 1886. And it begins to build up infrastructure and the other crucial technology that is coming to Alaska at this moment, especially interior Alaska, um, are the steamships, right? Uh, and so you have these 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 shallow keeled steamships that can make it up these interior rivers, and not just you know deeper rivers like the Yukon, but uh, rivers like the Tanana, Koyukuk that we'll we'll probably talk about here in a moment. And um, I mean I'm an energy historian as well, and it's actually fascinating. This is the first way that electricity came to Alaska mm. was on these steamships. Uh, probably in the mid 1880s, right about this moment, and then in Juneau in 1893, we get the first uh, hydropower on Gold Creek that's flowing right through downtown Juneau now. Um, so, you know, with these steamships, they required wood; they were burning wood to fuel themselves. So they kind of created an economy wherever they went because they would hire local people, indigenous people, to chop wood for these steamships, and then people would go and set up trading posts to facilitate, you know steamships coming with prospectors who were hungry, looking for gold. Um, you had indigenous communities who were usually interested in limited trade. And we can talk about this a little more. They didn't want to move their, lose their life ways, their ancestral ways of being. But a knife, a rifle, these were incredibly useful right. things to have for people who were spending their days hunting and fishing. And it's actually in this context that, that Fairbanks was found. So the only reason Fairbanks is where it is on the map is because of a, a steamboat escapade gone terribly wrong. I always joke with my students that if you were going to found a city in interior Alaska, uh, where we are here in Fairbanks is probably the worst place to put it. Um, there were no permanent indigenous settlements in this region, um, and there were none here for a reason. It's a, it's a pretty bad place to have a city in, in a lot of ways. Um, <clears throat> What happened is there was a gentleman by the name of E.T. Barnett, and uh, he had hired a, a steamship, the Lavelle Young, to carry him. He was actually hoping to go up the Tanana River, um, and he ended up seeing the Chena River. And for those who know the geography of interior Alaska here a little bit, um, Fairbanks is pretty close to the, the confluence of those two rivers. And the Chena River is almost like it's like an old glacial slough. It is a shallow river. It, um, it, it doesn't go that far back. There had been uh, gold prospecting on it um, going back into the 1890s. Uh, another excellent book, if I can recommend it here, by one of the first, uh, hmm. one of the first 
gold miners in this region, a gentleman by the name of Frederick James Courier. And the book is called An Alaska Adventure. And so there are people prospecting in this region. And so uh, E.T. Barnett is making his way up here, and his and the steamship runs uh, runs into a, a riverbank. And the captain says, I'm not going up any further. And E.T. Barnett says, okay, let's go back to the Tanneron. You can keep bringing me up the Tanneron. The captain said, we can't turn this around with all the, all the stuff you have up here. You're getting off my boat right now. They had a very unamiable parting of ways. E.T. Barnett's wife was like hysterical because they're just in the middle of the wilderness. You know, there's nothing around them. And they've got all their supplies about to be unloaded there. And that location where E.T. Barnett unloaded all of the supplies, that's downtown Fairbanks. <laughs> is that and, by the, and, like the, the Pikes Landing area or similar to that? Uh, it's or is a, it downtown, downtown? It, it, downtown, downtown, mm. right? Um, I actually don't know the exact spot, but it's, mm. you know, it's right around the show. And E.T. Barnett just got lucky because there happened to be a couple prospectors who are up in the hills, the way that I've heard the story is they were actually up on Estradome, so the highest point here around Fairbanks, and they saw the smoke from the Laval Young, and they needed supplies. And they came down and got supplies from him. They actually went back out, and that is when uh, Fields Pedro discovered gold here. So you had all the preconditions for um, the kind of third major gold rush, if you will, and the founding of Fairbanks. And very soon, Fairbanks was the largest community, not just in interior Alaska, but all of Alaska hmm. by about 1910. And they had built up this uh, this pioneer city here. And what, what distinguished Fairbanks from a lot of other communities like Circle is in 1904, they built a combined heat and power, power plant. So they had steam heat, they had running hot water here. None of these other gold uh, rush communities in the interior had those kind of amenities. And so it made Fairbanks this really crucial location. But then the second thing that made the difference is uh, Alaska uh, had a judge at the time, uh, James Wickersham, and Wickersham moved the courthouse from Eagle to Fairbanks. Um, and so I always find it ironic because there's no shortage of folks who have very critical views of the federal government here. But the reason that Fairbanks has thrived and succeeded as a city today is largely due uh, to the federal government because of the location of that courthouse and then the coming of the military here in 1939 the fact mm. of Lad Airfield. Yeah, it took a while for Anchorage to really take off. It was more known as a as a mud city or a tent city on the mud flats, and people are kind of surprised that so much of the growth came much, much later. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Frank, Anchorage doesn't become a major settlement, settlement at all until 1915 right with the founding of the alaska railroad and the only reason the alaska railroad decided to locate its headquarters there was because they were going to put it in seward but there's so much land speculation in seward they didn't want to pay the inflated prices so they kind of gave a uh, gave a middle finger to the land speculators and and established uh, the town of anchorage in 1915 and that grew quite large but um you know i think you would find this interesting uh, based on you know coming out of the southeast there um, Juneau and Ketchikan were the largest cities in Alaska until World War II, mm -hmm. right? So it's only in, um, I think it's probably 1940 that that uh, Fairbanks and Anchorage begin to overtake the size of those those Southeast Alaska cities. Mm -hmm. And and again, you know, Fairbanks was was the largest community in interior Alaska um, in in 1910, but uh, I'm pretty sure Juneau and Ketchikan were, were larger at that point. 
Yeah, Ketchikan was that first stop on the way up, and it's got strong roots in in fishing and mining and forestry. And so there's uh, in the 1920s and 1930s, it was a, a pretty booming community. And uh, Hollis, Alaska, which is on Prince of Wales Island, which is where the state ferry goes. When we moved up, we got off the ferry in Hollis, and I was five years old. And we had this 1983 station wagon with wood paneling on the side. And we're taking this dirt road to, to Kowak. And it was so bad. There were so many potholes that mom made us pull off to the side of the road. I don't remember this because I was five years old and it was, you know, I was probably sleeping, but uh, she had dad check on the China because we brought China up and she was just convinced it was getting, it was getting broken on this road. But yeah, at the turn of the century. So I think they were doing maybe copper or something in, in Hollis. And so um, that was a pretty big community, you know, a couple thousand people, whereas now it's, you know, maybe 100, 150. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was um, different economic drivers throughout these different periods of Alaska history. So really, it begins with fur, with sea otter fur, with, with the Russians coming. Um, and then we have the gold rush period. And what I always try to remind my students is it wasn't just gold. Very quickly after the coming of gold, we have the coming of railroads. And railroad development was, especially the bigger railroads, were primarily connected with copper. So between, um, for anybody who's been uh, down to the Copper River Valley, uh, you know, going out to, uh, to Kennecott, to McCarthy, down to Cordova, we had the, the building of the Copper River Northwest Railroad. And that is where the Kennecott Copper Corporation, which basically got their start in Alaska, exported over $2 billion worth of copper. And it, it was the copper from Alaska during that period that really helped electrify the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, uh, we get into, um, you know, there's fishing all during this time. You know, some of the first, uh, you know, salmon canneries are in the late 1880s uh, into the 18, uh, 1890s. Um, but, of course, uh, by the 1950s, we get into oil and the oil boom part of the story. Mm -hmm. So is that, um, I, I've been up there a couple of times and I look uh, at some of these communities and it makes sense why they're there. Uh, Nanana for the railroad, um, Fairbanks, but then driving north on um, on the Dalton Highway, you get to Wiseman and Coldfoot, and you think, well, I'm not really sure. It's not really on a navigable river. Um, was are, are those communities mostly pipeline related? Yeah, so it's a great question. So the pipeline is what I would call the second chapter of those communities, and I think that's why a lot of folks know about them today. But they got their start as part of this interior gold rush history. And so with the out-migration of all of these people from the Klondike, um, they were looking for the next big, uh, the next find. And um, they ended up in this region, the Central Brooks Range, which has always been one of the most remote wilderness places on Earth. Even back in the uh, indigenous days before Euro-American settlement, there was a scarcity of, of wildlife. As you mentioned, there's not great transportation routes through there. We're talking about the Middle Fork of the Koyukuk. Um, and, uh, you know, even indigenous people didn't live there permanently. They would travel through there. There was trading. Um, but what brought people there, like many other regions of the far north, was gold. And uh, so you have this out-migration of Dawson. People are moving up in the Yukon. The Yukon is the central transportation route of interior Alaska you know, into the Yukon Territory. And there was this con man who was hanging out on the banks of the, you know, the, the intersection of the, the Yukon uh, and the Koyukuk River. 
And he was a trader. He wanted to trade, sell people supplies. And he begins convincing people. He said, look, I discovered a bunch of gold up the middle fork of, of the Koyukuk. Um, you know, it's there for the taking. And he convinced so many people to go up there that eventually, and, and this is a mind-blowing statistic, 68 stern wheelers filled with 900 people went up that year in, um, in, in 1890, wow. right? Based on this one guy's fabricated evidence that he had found gold and he just wanted to sell them supplies and he did mm -hmm. um but what happens is you know this is this is some rough country up there in the central brooks range and there was an early freeze in late august early september and it froze all these these stern wheels these steamships it froze them in the middle of the okay um, so you have 900 people who are suddenly stuck in the central Brooks range. It's not where they want to be. It's not where gold is. And so five new towns spring up along the river where they got kind of stranded. There. And by the time that, uh, winter ended, this is now in 1899, there were only a hundred people left. The other 800 gotten out of there. I'm sure some perished. Um, but only a hundred make it up that drainage and make it up to, um, uh, community that's pretty close to uh, uh, or a creek that's pretty close to modern day Coldfoot and it's called Myrtle Creek and that's where they discovered sizable quantities of gold mm. in 1899 so they actually do discover gold and um, this tent city sprung up at a place called Slate Creek and they decided pretty quickly that this wasn't a good name for the community they needed a good name and so they called it a Coldfoot apparently to make fun of the 800 people who had South. Oh. <laughs> that previous winter the people who couldn't hack it uh as the story goes and um, so this becomes a kind of flourishing community there and then larger gold reserves are discovered even further north up the valley in 1907 so you know coldfoot had its, its its time in the sun right it had seven or eight years there where it was the community in the central brooks range but with uh the the find uh up the, the, the middle fork of Koyukuk, um, we have the rise of Wiseman. Wiseman becomes the new town, the new center. It was closer to new discoveries. And Goldfoot, um, Coldfoot, almost overnight, became a ghost town. Mm. And what they did is they moved the nicer cabins from Coldfoot to Wiseman in the winter, rolled them over logs, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which, is, which is wild. And uh, the others that weren't of, of much value, they just burned. And um, by so Wiseman, by 1918, it has 350 residents. It becomes a prosperous community. Uh, you know, this is a, a place that is has a lot of, I think people kind of romanticize it for a lot of reasons. Um, and one, one reason is, because of a, uh, a young man from the East who came there by the name of Bob Marshall. And Bob Marshall wrote a book called Arctic Village that was all about the dynamics of this frontier community. And, you know, Marshall wrote about how people actually got along really well, both, uh, you know, uh, both, both uh, Inupiaq people and Baskin people and European uh, peoples actually had quite a thriving community of, of mutual respect and admiration and because there are so few people and it was such a hard life they needed each other right, right? there wasn't room for um, disrespect and intolerance and mm -hmm. so that has given wise this, this kind of 
fascinating historical story. So that was chapter one. And then only later, I mean, basically Coldfoot is a ghost town. Uh, it's totally abandoned. And then uh, Wiseman in 1970, when the pipeline, when, when the companies are coming through, they're interested in building the road and the pipeline, there's only five people left in Wiseman. But that's really the beginning of the of the second chapter of its history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when we drove up there, it's, I don't know if it was a few hours north of Fairbanks to get to the Yukon River. And it's a lot more of the rolling hills, um, forested. Then you cross the Yukon and then you start getting closer to the Brooks Range. And um, Wiseman and Coldfoot are kind of at that that last stop and it's kind of appropriate. That's the last gasp before you really hit the, uh, the Brooks range Brooks range, because it really gets very, very dramatic after that. And, uh, but at this point you're still, was it like 300 miles or something like that from Fairbanks to Coldfoot or, or so, I mean, you're talking about a, a substantial drive out of, out of Fairbanks. It's not just, just up the Koyukuk. Like it's quite, quite the journey. And, um, it's, it's pretty fascinating about the, the con man too. It seems like there's so much history, about it's almost like more con men make history than people who made a lot of money i i got a buddy in skagway who their house is on the corner where frank reed shot soapy smith and then his brother reed is named after frank reed who shot him so just you know history that no one really cares about until you hear it and you think oh that's pretty cool that's pretty interesting but yeah con men really uh they made they made an impact totally you know it's, it's funny what we remember from history and who gets remembered. Right. And, um, you know, there's certainly no shortage of people who did make money up here. Although, again, to be clear, the vast majority don't. The vast majority come up here and maybe they're able to get by, but they're they're not going south with uh, with a million dollars, like the, the three lucky Swedes uh, who, who discovered gold and known. But there are also no shortage of people who, again, are up here to mine the miners. And maybe those are people who are, you know, legitimate uh, traders, but there's uh, certainly plenty of con men. And then we have some interesting, you know, there's there's some interesting characters in between. And I don't know if you've heard this story, but I always, I always like to tell my students, uh, you know, there's a young German immigrant who came to the United States. He was interested in the gold rush. Um, he set up a kind of establishment, a saloon in the town of Bennett. So this would have been on the Chilkoot Pass, just... Um, just north of Red Run Lake Bennett there uh, when you get to the top. And I think this is before people are making their maps and going down, um, you know, the, the, the upper part of the Yukon River. And this gentleman opens an establishment. It is um, not a reputable establishment in the parlance of, uh, you know, the, the, the people with manners of the, the day. It was it was a saloon. It was a brothel. They had private booths to entertain the miners. They could pay with their little their little bits of gold dust. And um, he makes a, quite a bit of money with that. And he he opens another establishment in Whitehorse. But he eventually leaves with a good amount of money in his pocket. Tries to go back to Germany. They don't let him into Germany for whatever reason. And he ends up settling in New York City, investing that money in real estate. And wow. his name was Fred Trump. And that's Donald Trump's grandfather. Oh, wow. Yeah. The Trump huh. family fortune has its origins in the Klondike Gold Rush. Wow. That's super interesting. Yep. I read, or I, maybe I watched a video or something about, uh, well, actually two things. One, one of the ladies who made the most money in Dawson was someone who brought up lace and silk. 
And so she was able to, you know, make undergarments for the women who were there and then uh, silk underwear for the guys or whatever it was. And then there was another one who was pretty early on up there and was one of the few people who didn't spend all the money um, at the bars, casinos and all that, or didn't, didn't gamble it away. And then ended up being pretty rich. And then his, I think it's grandson became a millionaire because of the literature that his grandfather had saved. And so the grandfather becomes rich because he was able to maintain and mine and be smart and save the money. And then he collected literature about uh, the Klondike gold rush. And then the grandson becomes wealthy again because of something else, but related to that, it's, it's pretty wild. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me uh, what my grandfather said, uh, you know, it's not what you make, it's what you save. And I think we can draw a parallel between what happened with the gold rush and then what happens with the black gold rush with the, with the coming of the pipeline and mm -hmm. people who are making more money than they knew what to do with. They, you know, they were spending their free time. They'd fly down to Hawaii and blow all the money and come back. But there were, a, you know, some pioneering or entrepreneuring folks who saved their money and they were able to reinvest that in the community in a more sustainable way. But that's certainly a, a feature of Alaska history, our, our boom and bust cycles mm -hmm. and what people actually do with that, with that wealth at the end of the day. Yeah. So you say the second chapter or the second uh, story of Wiseman and Coldfoot. So the pipeline comes in, um, major stopping point, construction point, uh, hub, um, how big did it get? And then now it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty thin, uh, thinly populated at this point. There is a really nice truck stop there with a great, <laughs> great buffet. That's, it might be yeah. really, really good. I'm not, I'm not sure, but after all that drive, it's certainly exactly what you want to eat. That's right. A, a good buddy of mine was coming out of a float trip up there this summer and he said it was the best food he's ever had. I mean, that's how, <laughs> that's how good it was. The best cheeseburger he's ever had. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what happens is, you know, there's not many people in Wiseman at this point. The oil companies, they actually discovered the gas cap of Prudhoe Bay in 1967, and the oil is really discovered in 1968. And then all of the attention goes on, how the hell do you get this oil to market? As one USGS geologist said in the 1930s, it might as well be on the moon. I mean, it was so remote, it was so distant. And... Um, there were a lot of different ideas, but it was pretty clear from the beginning that some type of pipeline would have to run through there. They were actually going to originally run the pipeline down the John River Valley, which is uh, one valley over from the Middle Fork of the Koyukuk. And um, it was going to go through Anacuba Pass. That was the original route the Navy had actually surveyed back in the 1940s. Uh, the Navy was the one who first discovered large quantities of oil up on the North Slope during World War II in the early 1950s. When the Navy was trying to find oil to run America's military machine to, you know, first, um, you know, defend against the Japanese and then uh, for the early Cold War. Um, but the people of Anaktubic Pass did not want this, uh, this pipeline coming down their valley. And so the pipeline companies pivoted and they decided, hey, we can go up and over Attigan Pass. And Attigan Pass is the highest elevation now of both the pipeline and the Dalton Highway. The Hall Road that runs through there, and it's uh, not that far distant from from Wiseman and. Um, but this was kind of a day and age, you know. The environmental movement was just getting hot. There wasn't uh, there wasn't a lot of permitting going on. Uh, the National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 had just been passed uh, after the Santa Barbara oil spill. Um, 
And and so the oil companies kind of still had carte blanche to do what they mm-hmm. wanted. And they actually uh, began building uh, this kind of illegal pipeline ring. And so there's there's a gentleman up in in Wiseman um, who who Jack Rekoff who tells the story. He was a kid when of suddenly, you know, this is a this is a quiet place, right? In the middle of the Central Brooks Range. And then one night they start to see these lights in the distance. Mm-hmm. And it was a convoy of these oil company bulldozers blazing this frontier trail into their community. And, and uh, when Congress found out about this, they were pretty upset. This is one of the things that led to pressure that actually stalled the pipeline. Um, you know, the oil companies were trying to get this built um by 1972 and the pipeline got blocked in 1970 and they didn't start building it until 74 and it didn't get finished till 77. Um, but what ultimately ends up happening is that in order to build the pipeline, they need the haul road. So um, the haul road was constructed after Congress gave approval for the pipeline system. This is in 1974. They actually built the entire road in a year. It was mm-hmm. quite the accomplishment. Um, and this is, uh, the most remote wilderness highway in the United States, right? As you're mentioning, there's only a few gas stations on it. You can uh, fill up for gas basically at the beginning, um, right right after you leave uh, Fairbanks. And then otherwise you don't run into a gas station until a Yukon River crossing. And then there's a gas station in, in Coldfoot. And that is it mm-hmm. until you get to Dead Horse, until you get to Prudhoe Bay. Um, and what the, ends the up top, happening- the- Cost of that was was it over a million dollars a mile? I know this; it's very, very expensive. And then a lot of the places you can kind of get the gravel that you need for the base in that area. But then when you start getting to the tundra, you're not getting the same amount of gravel. And then of course with the the terrain, it's not going to be great. So was it over a million dollars a mile? What was the cost per per mile? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't have those figures right in front of me. I want to say it was over a million dollars a mile. Um, you know, the road ends up being, I want to say 460 miles. You'd have to, you'd have to fact check me on that. Um, although one of these, uh, side projects I'm doing, uh, is on the 50th anniversary of the Dalton highway, because that's this year Dalton highway constructed in 1974. We're here in 2024 and it's a remarkable infrastructure. And, uh, what I think is, is, is fascinating about it is that there was great concern about what this highway would do, that it would open up the northern part of the state and it would bring all this other unwanted development. I mean, hunting was the main thing most people were concerned about. Indigenous communities were worried about it. Uh, the governor at the time, uh, Jay Hammond, you know, the reason we have the permanent fund and the permanent fund dividend, he said, what we decide to do this road uh, will be our development policy for all of northern Alaska. Right. Like that's how crucial he thought this road was. So um, the oil companies built it. They paid for it other than the bridge over the Yukon River, which was paid with federal funds. Um, but then they gave it to the state, which the oil companies acted as though this was the nicest present that anybody could ever give the state of Alaska. And the state of Alaska was certainly excited to get that road. But it um, is a very costly road to maintain. And so now that is, of course, funded by the people of Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, it has become a tourist, uh, you know, this, this tourist road, this road, uh, especially for hunting. But for most of its history, it was actually, especially the northern part of it, was closed to the public. It was a, a private industrial court. And it was only in the 1990s that the northern half of 
was really opened to the public because of a series of lawsuits. And it was basically because federal funds had gone into building that bridge and therefore the road could not be closed to the public. Right. right. And there was a period of time, I want to say it was between 1993 and 2001, where you could drive all the way to the Arctic Ocean. Right. Mm -hmm. But then 9-11 happened and the oil fields are closed off. So now you can get within a few miles of the ocean, but you have to take a private tour company if you want to go to the ocean. And they said, well, this is because of the security of the oil fields. And I kind of roll my eyes at that because you're driving up the Dalton the entire way. You're driving alongside exactly. this pipeline, yeah. right? Which, which, as we know in Alaskan history, uh, people have messed with it. People have shot it. Um, and so the notion that somehow the oil fields are the vulnerable part of that system uh, does not uh, withstand uh, <laughs> the, the uh, you know, that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Um but that highway got opened and that it's always been a very contentious thing about the rights of access along that corridor, especially because of the politics of hunting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really tough too. When I was up there two years ago, it's absolutely isolated and desolate and you feel so unbelievably small, but then also there's enough people around there where you don't get that total feeling of isolation, like almost a suffocating isolation because you got the trucks going and you expect the trucks. But along with the internet came more people talking about these hunts and these roads and these opportunities. So the advertising of it, and when you don't have the gatekeeper of magazines or, or broadcast journalism, that's, that's, you know, you can just broadcast yourself or write articles yourself. And so the amount of people up there that had rented U-Hauls that were hunting and from out of state. And you know, there was also some, um, some scientists doing science things out there, but there were just these different groups of people. And it wasn't a lot of people, but it was enough to really make it a bizarre juxtaposition of this is the North Slope. This is absolute isolated. This is very only minutely touched, but there's a lot more people than I expected. Yeah, it's interesting. That road in that region is often portrayed as this extraordinary wilderness region. And especially, you know, some of these tro shows like Ice Road Truckers, they've romanticized that. And I don't even know about all the different reality TV shows that talk about this today. Um, and, and yet it has this, exactly as you mentioned, this kind of juxtaposition because it is an industrial corridor, right? Those trucks keep the oil fields humming. They keep them alive. In fact, when that road has been closed because of things like the flooding of the Sag River in 2015, I mean, it's gotten quite uh, quite a dire situation up there because it's the lifeline of supplies. Um, on the other hand, I think the wilderness, the feeling of wilderness has still endured, especially when you get outside of that right mm -hmm. but in the corridor itself and you know this, this is a legal corridor i think it's five miles on either side of the road right um most of it is managed by the federal government by blm there's no motorized um certainly no motorized hunting but there's no hunting with firearms in that in that corridor and there are restrictions on um, you know atbs and that sort of thing and because of that i think it's actually it has limited the amount of development that's happened in that corridor. But when you get outside of that, uh, you know, you really, and I've been up there several times, I think you really still do have that wilderness feeling. But absolutely, as you're, as you're talking about, because of the internet, 
there are now certain hot spots, right? So you go up there in spring and you go up by Dalton, uh, sorry, by Galbraith Lake, and there's this super well put in trail that goes out there for all the caribou hunters. And there's mushing teams who are doing tours up there. And you might as well be on a super highway hmm. in some of these places, but you go one valley over and you could be, uh, you know, you feel like you're the only person around for a hundred miles. Mm-hmm. So it's, it, you're absolutely right. There's, there's, there's quite the contrast. They were doing construction up there when we were there. So from that lake, uh, Galbraith, right? Is that the name of it? Um, for like 40 some miles. And so it took a long time because we had to wait for the pilot cars. Uh, but once we got through that, then, um, it was, you know, some rolling Hills and we got to the, like the last Hill before it really drops down into the tundra. And there was a, you know, a toilet, there was cell phone reception. It was wild to have just this random spot there. I think it was relatively near a pump station and it seemed like that was maybe the first stop. It was a couple hours South of dead horse. So trucker stop, you know, nice facility space, a spot where they can drive in and pull all the way around and, and, and do that. So it was so crazy to be camping at this spot that we're totally isolated. But like you said, when we hiked out past the, the corridor, we thought that maybe there'd be like a little bit of an undulation or a little something where we could then see, but it was just so flat once we were up there and just impossibly flat. And even on the other side of the road with the Sag river, you don't know how many braids there are when you're flying over things. You can get an idea of, okay, here's the main channel. This is a braid. This is a braid. And so we were looking at this at the other side and there was a little bit of a bluff. We thought, can we even get over there? You know, like waiting could be so, so dangerous because we can get over this braid and this braid and this braid, but who knows about later on. And then of course the weather, it, not where we're at is important. The weather up in the brooks is important. So if it snows up there or rains up there, it's all going to wash down. The Sag river is going to uh, come up by, you know, two, three, four inches or even feet. And then all of a sudden we're stuck on the other side and yeah, it's, it's, it's present and you know that you're on the edge, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense and it was, it was pretty wild and fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I love that description of impossibly flat. You get North of the Brooks range, you're on the coastal plain and it is, um, I mean, honestly, driving gets pretty boring because it is, <laughs> it is really flat. Um, but you're right that, uh, you know, you're on the, you're on the edge. You're in that landscape. And, and this is exactly what happened in the Sag River in 2015. And it's one of these rivers that, um, you know, historically this would happen. But as the climate's changing a little bit, you get these extreme per- precipitation events more often. And it actually flooded the road and it flooded the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And um, they've had to do, I wonder if some of the construction that you saw, they're actually having to raise the bed of the road feet. Mm-hmm in order to accommodate the issues with that, with that Sag River. And, you know, again, um, you know, we're able to get some federal highway funds to do that. Historically, the Dalton uh, has received a lot of federal funding, but a lot of that is also state funding because we've got to protect our, our infrastructure. Um, and so I think you're right to be concerned about some of those, these shallow, north-flowing um, rivers that are coming out of the Brooks Range because the, their character can transform in our so going forward, you, you've talked uh, a little bit about energy and environment a little bit. So, you know, if it's been a hundred years since, actually maybe 120 years since really kind of that gold rush in the interior, um, 50 years from now, 120 years from now, are we going to see, you know, a massive amount of, you know, will one day Fairbanks have half a million people? Will it be a, a North Anchorage? What, what do you foresee 
and we're going to hold you to this, of course, and we'll look back at the prognostication here. But <laughs> what, what do you think uh, happens with Interior Alaska? Oh, boy, that's a great question. And, you know, I always joke as a historian that we, uh, we don't find it profitable to be a prophet. Uh, but I'll, I can I can maybe speak in some some general generalities. I, I think some of this there is rhetoric out there, you know, with the with the warming climate that Alaska is going to be this this haven for climate migrants, right? And we're going to have all these people flooding up here. And yet, those of us who know, especially interior Alaska, right, this place is dominated by discontinuous permafrost, right? It is not easy to build up here. Um, Alaska has never been, Alaska has always been a hungry land, right? Resources are clustered in certain places, and they're usually maritime resources, right? It's usually where the salmon are running, right? That provides bounty, especially to the, to the interior. So it's hard for me to believe that we're going to have uh, hundreds of thousands of people uh, living up here, and it's it's just going to make Fairbanks boom. One of the things I actually love about Fairbanks is that um, it is it's not that big, right? We got a hundred thousand people in the entire borough up here, which might sound big compared to Ketchikan or something like that. But you go down to Anchorage in the valley, it feels yeah. uh, much more manageable. And yet we have these uh, you know world class resources. I can ski from my front door for fifty miles, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of me feels like, you know, this is like a, like a ski town or something in Colorado that people have, haven't discovered. Yet. But of course, they have discovered it. They just, they just can't hack the, the cold. What did you call mm-hmm. it? Varsity, Alaska. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but I do think, you know, the economy is going to continue to evolve. Uh, mining is still an important part of the economy here. There's some, you know, major mining controversies which continue to, to happen in Fairbanks today. Um, I think oil is going to keep flowing for a while, but uh, I would uh, speculate, as many have before, that the the road, the Dalton Highway, is going to outlast the pipeline, mm-hmm. right? Um, as one person said in the, in the 70s, that road will be as permanent as the pyramids, right? Mm-hmm. That is now a crucial link to the North Slope of Alaska. And, and so I can imagine that being there. Um, I don't think we're going to be a second anchorage. I think we can, we will continue to have. Uh, population growth here, but I think there's just too many environmental conditions which are going to prevent a lot of people coming here. You know, I I think uh, there's going to be way more people south of the Alaska Range, right? You take the stretch from Cantwell all the way down into Wasilla and Palmer, right. and I think that is where the majority of the state's population is going to live in yeah. that in that place because there's there's land there, uh, there's not as much permafrost. Um, you've got a major highway there. You've got infrastructure there. You've got a railroad. You've got electric. Um, and I just think that's going to be much more conducive to growth. Um, but it will be interesting to see what, what continues to power interior Alaska, how we make our, make our living up here um, and, and, and what uh, remains important to us. And I think that it's not just going to be gold mining. I think it's going to be mining for critical minerals. Right. Uh, a lot of these minerals that uh, people say are going to be important for the energy transition, for electric vehicles, for wind turbines, renewables. Um, you know, there's a lot of those resources up here. And yet mining also um, is in conflict with a lot of uh, traditional subsistence activities, with hunting, with fishing, with many of the things that we hold dear that uh, are part of the Alaskan character. And so that's going to be a major tension moving forward to try to navigate uh, those, those two different forces. 
Yeah, here in the Southeast, we've seen it so much with Ketchikan, you know, being re rebirthed a couple of different times, first with, with mining and then forestry and fishing. And fishing is still pretty good. And so we're still known as a as a fishing town. But with timber industry really, you know, taking taking a hit in the mid nineties when the pulp mill closed in Ketchikan and uh, in Sitka, people thought that, you know, they they dry up, maybe not completely, but be, you know, they're gonna have to do something in order to keep uh, infrastructure in order to keep people there. And so that catch can really went full tilt tourism and, you know, over, you know, close to 2 million people. And now we're getting to the point where, all right, we're not doing like resource extraction, but we are using the beauty of Southeast as a, you know, a viewing resource or eco tours. And, but at what well, point is it going to be, too much you know is is the number going to be three million can we really handle three million people up right. here and then your your local areas are kind of getting fished out for some of the stuff so the local people you know i just got an 18 foot skiff i'm not going out to the outside waters where you can catch the king salmon that are going down to you know california and oregon and you know wherever else those, those huge amounts it's, it's kind of tough and areas that are in the interior like you said i i'm not sure if a lot of people would want to move to Fairbanks for economic prosperity. Um, there has to be some sort of resource or some sort of job security. Um, totally. Al along the highway, it was it was really sad driving up and, and camping in, in the Willow area because you get this idea that, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, there was so much land. It would have been a great place to put in a cabin. But that was back when you can fish for king salmon. You know, with the closure, yeah. it just seems like a sad, you know, you're decades too late. But, you know, people want to come up there that will probably be the spot kenai peninsula has got a lot of people but it's you know the resources of the fishing which draw so many people and so much commercial and so much revenue it's going to be a little different but i think those areas will probably grow a lot more than some of the other ones yeah i i think that's spot on and you know this question of uh what is sustainable with the tourism i always tell my students there's there's a difference between being uh what is renewable and what is sustainable right um, and, you know, even if you had people coming up on electric cruise ships or whatever, that might be renewable energy, but it's not sustainable to have 3 million people in some of these places. I know Juno is having a lot of those conversations right now, um, even as they're doing things like electrifying their cruise ship docks, uh, which is which is interesting. And um, here in Interior Alaska, you know, tourism has now become a big part of our economy. There's a gentleman up here who runs Sheena Hot Springs, Bernie Carl, and he basically pioneered winter tourism in Fairbanks. Mm -hmm. So you get on a flight now anytime in the winter. I just did this, you know, yesterday. And you have a bunch of tourists, often Asian tourists, coming up for the northern lights, right, coming up for the hot springs. And I do think that's going to continue to be a really important part of our future. Um, but, uh, you know, the big picture for me, I actually I go back to the past. I go back to Jay Hammond, right, who I think was our greatest governor. And his vision for the state, so he presided over the state, um, you know, he was a Republican environmentalist, right? Maybe the most endangered of species today. <laughs> and he, um, um, his vision for Alaska was, look, we've got these non-renewable resources that we're extracting, whether that's gold, whether that's copper, whether that's oil. Let's take the revenues from those and put that in a giant savings account. And then we can invest in renewable resources, whether that's timber, whether that's fishing, whether that's tourism. I mean, that was his vision in the 70s. And to his credit, we've done that with the permanent fund. 
We've got an $80 billion pot of money that provides the majority of our state funding. And to the extent that we can continue to put as much money into that as possible, um, we can have a sustainable future for our state that isn't reliant on the boom and bust of these resource cycles. And it makes it so that, um, you know, ideally we can have the, the amenities that we want in terms of, you know, decent paid jobs and, you know, being able to, to, to have grocery stores that aren't too expensive and build up that infrastructure, but also uh, to maintain the things that we really love as Alaskans, right? The, the salmon in our waters, the moose in our backyard, and um, that, that homesteading mentality that I think is still uh, so important. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask if you had a closer, but that's about a, a, as good a closer as you could have about uh, Alaska in the future. But anything else you want to add or any uh, reading recommendations or, or anything? Um, you know, I, I think I would just uh, circle back around to, to some of those reading recommendations that I mentioned. Um, Bob Marshall's Arctic Village, an absolute classic for those who are interested in Wiseman and Coldfoot. Uh, this book, An Alaskan Adventure by Frederick James Courier. If you're interested in the history of the gold rush before the Klondike, because again, there's quite a history in there, uh, which is which is fascinating. And um, I mean, there's plenty of other Alaska book suggestions that I have, but I think I think those are two of the most prominent ones for thinking about uh, Gold Rush Alaska. And actually, I will offer one, more, um, which is thinking about Jay Hammond and thinking about his vision for a sustainable Alaska. He wrote a phenomenal book that is uh, people often assign who are in uh, in politics or state government, and it's called Diapering the Devil. Hammond had a, quite a quite an interesting way with words. And it's his thoughts on on uh, what does a sustainable Alaska look like and how. Mm, cool. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Just fascinating stuff. Love talking about history. Absolutely. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Jeff. And I'll uh, continue to listen to your podcast with interest. Awesome. Thank you.